And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about that plan to provide no-cost meals at school for all Minnesota students. But first, the effort to legalize marijuana. A bill to do that has already been heard in more than a dozen committees in the Minnesota House and is moving through the Senate committees as well. In fact, the Senate Judiciary Committee is considering it as we speak. The basics. It would legalize possession and use of marijuana for people 21 and older, expunge criminal records for people convicted of past marijuana offenses, and create a regulatory system for the sale and taxation of marijuana products. There are a lot more details, and here to talk about some of them is the chief sponsor of the bill in the House, DFL Representative Zach Stevenson of Coon Rapids, who chairs the Commerce Committee, and a lawmaker who opposes the legislation, Republican Representative Kirsten Robbins of Maple Grove, who's an assistant minority leader in the House. Thanks to both of you for being here, and let me start with the big picture and start with you, Zach Stevenson. Why should marijuana be legal in Minnesota? Well, thanks for having me to talk about uh, this issue. You know, I think that Minnesotans are ready for cannabis to be legal in Minnesota. I think our current laws are doing a lot more harm than good. Uh, We are not getting the results that we want to get out of the way that we're treating uh, cannabis with our, our laws today. Use is high, outcomes are poor, and a lot of money is being wasted that could be put uh, to better use. Minnesotans deserve the opportunity, the freedom, the dignity to make their own choices about cannabis, just the same way we do about alcohol and other similar substances. Uh, And so I think that's why you see that there is broad and uh, durable support uh, for legalizing cannabis in Minnesota. And Representative Kristen Robbins, what's the main argument against moving ahead with legal marijuana? You know, I think... um There are several, but um, the first and foremost is the health effects, especially on young people. I think studies have increasingly shown that um, use of marijuana, especially while brains are still developing up to age 25, has long-term implications for um, people's um, health, IQ, social outcomes, and then also exposure for young people. And, you know, increase of fatal accidents has been shown in other states, and there's no available roadside test. There's no real ability for local control. I mean, I could go on and on. There's a lot of reasons to oppose this, though. Well, let's start with the age issue. Uh, Representative Stevenson, uh, some people say the legal age should be 25, but the bill puts it at 21. Uh, Why 21? Well, 21 as a society is, is the age that we have decided that people are adults, and you see that across the board. You know, there are a lot of things that you should probably, uh, that science would suggest that people should not be doing between the ages of 21 and 25 because the brain is still developing, particularly around impulse control, you know, whether it's gambling or um, drinking, uh, making huge life decisions. But we as a society have decided that people who are 21 are adults and should um, uh, be able to make adult decisions. And it's also worth noting that the evidence is really clear that when you legalize cannabis in other states, youth access to cannabis actually does not increase. Youth consumption of cannabis stays constant. We have over a decade of data from Colorado and Washington and other states showing that to be clear. Uh, So if young people want to be smoking cannabis today, uh, they are able to do so, and the, the legalization isn't going to change that. What we're able to do when we legalize cannabis is make sure that we have a regulated, safe product, a product that isn't being laced with some other much more harmful uh, uh, material like fentanyl. 
So I actually think health outcomes improve uh, among young people when you have access to a legal and regulated marketplace instead of forcing people to go through the illicit marketplace. Kristen Robbins, what about that? I mean, kids are smoking it anyway, and uh, wouldn't legalizing it make it a safer product? You know, I I don't believe so. I think there's a lot of evidence um, showing that although maybe youth consumption remains about the same, exposure for young people much younger ages is increased, and hospitalizations for cannabis poisoning um, are up for really young young ages, like zero to three, zero to five. And there's been studies that show that when young people are exposed to their parents smoking, um, that that increases their likelihood of smoking. So even if they're really young children in the home, seeing this behavior, it's more likely that they will then um, engage in it when they are older and have adverse out- outcomes, especially if they start younger than age 25. So I think um, the generational effect is actually going to be significant and very harmful. Uh, Representative Stevens, let me ask you a little more about the uh, the regulatory uh, structure here. How would it work under the bill, and how, uh, how would you ensure that uh, people are getting a product that uh, they can count on, that it is what it says it is? Yeah, so I, I want to just briefly mention that actually uh, pediatric exposures to cannabis, the hospitalizations that Representative Robbins were talking about, higher in Minnesota today than it is in states like Colorado where cannabis is legalized. Uh, legalization provides a more safe uh, uh, marketplace, and that kind of goes to what you were just asking. Yeah. So under this bill, we would monitor cannabis from seed to sale. All of the cannabis in the system would have to be grown in Minnesota. You couldn't bring it in from other places, other states. And it would all be tracked in a centralized uh, database as it moves through the system from being grown to being processed to being sold in a retailer. So we can have very high confidence that it's not being tainted or adulterated anywhere along the way. Testing would also be required. We would also specifically uh, approve specific products for sale. So you would have great confidence as a consumer going into a dispensary and buying cannabis that you're getting exactly what you think you're getting. You won't have to worry about it being tainted with some other product like fentanyl, which is what we're seeing happening in the illicit marketplace. And that makes a much safer experience uh, for people consuming cannabis. Well, let me just uh, stick with you for a minute and ask you another question, because there was concern among the people who uh, are in the business of THC edibles derived from hemp that uh, this bill would put them out of business. Have you resolved that? We have, yeah. So what we've done is adopted some new licensing regime that gets to some of these issues, and it gets very technical, but I'll just say that current federal law in making cannabis illegal, where where hemp-derived products are legal, creates some odd tax implications, but we have resolved that in the bill, and we're going to allow this emerging industry around hemp-derived products, and in particular the THC-infused beverages that are very popular, uh, to continue and grow in Minnesota. Uh, And Representative Robbins, let me ask you about that, because uh, it does seem like there's a market for these products. And it, it, you know, when you when you listen to uh, Republicans talk a lot of the time, they say, uh, let the market decide. And, uh, you know, the market should be free to operate. So so why shouldn't that apply to some of these products as we are seeing the hemp derived THC 
I mean, the regulatory problems we can talk about, but at least uh, as for the market, there there seems to be people want these things. You know, I'm I'm I I agree people want them, but I think that maybe what they want is different than what they may get. There is no potency limit in this bill. And, you know, the marijuana from the 60s and 70s, the average um, THC concentration was 1% to 3%. Today's marijuana flower, it's 15 to 17%. But the concentrates and the um, manufactured products, um, including edibles, now average 56% and often go as high as 80%. And what we've seen in um, Washington State, for example, is that they are rethinking this and they are now suggesting that um, high potency products um, be regulated, that there be a limit of 35% on all products and that they prohibit the marketing and advertising of high potency products and that they raise the legal age to 25. So states that have gone down this path before us are finding a lot of problems with how this is going. It is not... um, it is not working as advertised, and not only on the potency side, but also on the illegal market. There was a study in the LA Times last fall, September of 2022, that gave great depth on the expansion of the illegal market in California and all the crime, all the terrible problems that are arising because of that. And there just aren't enough guardrails um, to prohibit that from happening here in Minnesota. So I, I feel like the bill, although uh, Chair Stevenson has worked very hard on it, he has made changes and tried to be responsive, accepted some of the amendments our side has brought forward. Many of the amendments we've brought forward have also been rejected, and we just feel like Minnesota is not in a place to um, implement this well. Let me just remind uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the effort to legalize marijuana in Minnesota uh, that's going on at the state capitol. Uh, my guests right now are DFL Representative Zach Stevenson of Coon Rapids. He chairs the House Commerce Committee, and he's the chief sponsor of the House bill to legalize marijuana. And we're also joined by Republican Representative uh, Kirsten Robbins of Maple Grove, who, as you might be able to tell, is an opponent of the plan. And uh, Representative Stevenson, let me uh, ask you about a couple points that uh, Representative uh, Robbins brought up there. First of all, the potency of uh, of legal marijuana. Does the bill have any limits? And secondly, the illegal market. Are you confident that the bill would, uh, w- if pot were legal in Minnesota, it would crowd out the illegal products? Well, on potency, I think, first of all, it's important that people not try to um, uh, frighten people about cannabis. Cannabis is a very safe product compared to a lot of legal substances that are on the marketplace today. And for example, with alcohol, there's no potency limit for alcohol. You can go to a liquor store and buy uh, uh, alcohol that has extremely high alcohol uh, content. Um, and I don't know that it makes sense to take a different approach to cannabis that's just going to embolden the illegal marketplace because if people can't buy the products they're looking for they will find places where they can buy them so tying into that illicit marketplace conversation the states that have had struggles um, with uh, curbing their illicit marketplace are the states that have over regulated and over taxed uh, the product so uh, representative robbins mentions california where taxes on cannabis are so high it creates a real uh, price gap between what's available in the legitimate marketplace and what's available in the illicit marketplace. 
And that's what's allowed the illicit marketplace to continue to thrive there. Other states have allowed for a lot of local control, saying counties or cities can just opt out where you're not allowed to sell cannabis in those uh, communities. Again, that creates a nice big opening for the illicit marketplace uh, to drive through and serve those people and continue to persist. So in Minnesota, we want a system that's uniform across the state, that's safe, uh, where we have strong controls on the illicit marketplace, and my bill does contain that, very significant civil penalties for people who are selling cannabis outside of the legitimate marketplace, giving local units of governments tools to crack down on illicit operators. Those are important features of this. And some states have been successful in curbing their illicit marketplace, and we're trying to follow those models, unlike the models that have had really high taxes or a patchwork of regulation that just encourages the illicit marketplace. So uh, under your plan, what would the tax be and what would the money go for? So right now, our tax is about 8% uh, on uh, cannabis, and that's on top of the regular sales tax that uh, applies. So we're sitting kind of more around 15%, depending upon uh, where you are in the state. Um, but I will say that that's something we're going to continue to look at. What we want with this bill is for it to be self-supporting. So there's a lot of things in the bill about doing education for the public and for young people about substance use and addiction. There's money for treatment and prevention. There's money for law enforcement. And there's obviously a lot of money for that regulatory regime that's going to monitor and test and control the cannabis as it moves uh, from seed to sale. And all of that, we believe, needs to be paid for by the taxes on cannabis itself. What we're not going to do in this bill is what other states have done, call it the pot for potholes model, where we use cannabis taxes to fund the basics of government like road construction or schools. The effort here is to move into a legitimate marketplace, get rid of the illicit marketplace. And so we want the taxes high enough to support all of the things we need to do in this bill to make it successful, but otherwise as low as possible. Representative Robbins, uh, that sounds like a, a decent argument. What do you make of that? You know, it sounds good, but I, I don't think it's going to work. First of all, there will always be the differential between, if there's any taxation, there will be a differential between the legal and illegal market. So that um, argument that it, that it will, um, that keeping taxes low will, will keep the illegal market in check, I don't think really has merit. But secondly, I, from what the local officials are telling me, there's very little local control in this. There, because of a compromise, they're now allowed a local retail license and can charge $200 a year. But that won't come close to covering the costs of local law enforcement um, checks and compliance and enforcing that. And we also have requested money for drug recognition experts because there is no roadside test available for um, THC impairment. We want to have these special trainings for law enforcement officers so that they can be um, certified to recognize it. And um, that is very expensive training. Again, that amendment has not been accepted. So I, the bill itself calls for lo a revolving loan program, giving loans of um, 50000 to up to $150,000 in a revolving loan program because these businesses, especially the small micro-businesses, will not be able to actually uh, probably make it work without a lot of support. And so I just don't see, we don't have a fiscal note on this bill yet, but I do not see how it would be self-funding under 
the tax regime proposed. And uh, I have a lot of concern about taxpayers being on the hook for enforcement, for um, additional substance use disorder. We're already having a crisis of substance use disorder in the state. Okay, and uh, well, let me just let me just our, ask you let me just ask you a question though. What's keeping the illegal market in check right now? Because it, it seems to be thriving. Right now, because there there are criminal penalties and, and there is law enforcement um, for possession and use and distribution and those things, I, I think the threat of that is what is helping. What, what was said in the New York Times article, if I can, um, I, I don't know if I can recall it completely, but, but basically they said people who are already going to take the risk um, to be in the illegal market – um, now they just have the benefit of decriminalization. Hmm. And I wish I could remember the exact quote, quote directly, but if I find it here, I'll, I'll certainly share it with you. Um, and Representative Stevenson, what about this sort of underlying point there that uh, that this has the potential to create more problems than the tax or whatever can solve? Well, I just fundamentally disagree. I, I, I think that right now the system we have is creating so many more problems than we saw. Uh, you know, the, if the criminal justice system was going uh, to wipe out the illicit cannabis market, it would have done it a long time ago. And I say that as a, I work as a prosecutor uh, when the legislature is not in session. We've had 50 years of a criminal justice solution to the cannabis or approach to the cannabis uh, issue that have, has not solved anything. And actually, uh, when we look at what happens in states that legalize cannabis, uh, it's universal. Across the board, every state that has done this sees significant declines in opioid overdose deaths. This is like the one of the most reliable outcomes of legalization is that opioid overdose deaths uh, decrease. And that is a remarkable uh, reason why we should do this, because uh, we are having a crisis with substance uh, uh, use disorders here in Minnesota. But prohibition of cannabis is making it worse, not better. So you don't think this would add to the problem of chemical dependency or, you know, people just wanting to smoke marijuana all the time? So in states that have legalized, the evidence is very clear that use does increase, but among this very specific population, as I mentioned before, we can see across states like Colorado and Washington, uh, the, the teen smoking or young person smoking stays the same. Uh, overall use increases because you see a significant increase in senior citizens uh, consuming uh, cannabis. And I think that that has a lot to do with uh, the ability of cannabis to provide meaningful pain relief. And I think that's part of the reason why you see opioid uh, deaths uh, reduce as people aren't relying on more dangerous opioids uh, to treat medical conditions. Representative Robbins, what do you think? I mean, is this going to cause more chemical dependency or the statistics don't seem to uh, to indicate that? I think it absolutely will call, cause more mental health problems and more addiction problems. And we've had testimony to that effect in the different committee stops. We had the head of the um, um, psychiatry graduate education at the higher ed committee this week say that on the record that we don't have enough addiction specialists and we will need more if this happens. And so I just feel like Minnesota is already not um, adequately addressing the addiction and me- mental health crises that we are facing. And to legalize 
marijuana and add to the problems for law enforcement for highway crashes. There's a new study out um, by the National Institute of Highway Safety saying in all the states where they um, legalized um, marijuana in the West, there was statistically significant increase in crashes. I believe it was 4% or 6%. I mean, we, we are just creating problems for our state at a time when we just need to, to do a better job of addressing um, real significant problems that we are already facing. Uh, Representative Stevenson, is this a partisan issue? Do you expect uh, a fair amount of uh, bipartisan support for this bill? We had uh, bipartisan support in uh, our last committee stop in the Transportation Committee uh, this week. We had um, uh, some Republican support for the bill, uh, not as much as I would like. As uh, Representative Robbins uh, indicated, I've been working really hard uh, to listen to my friends on the other side of the aisle and to take uh, Republican amendments and ideas. Uh, I've taken a lot. I think we're over a dozen Republican amendments that have been adopted. There are some that I have not been able to accept because I think they move us in the wrong direction. And there are others that we're still working on. You know, Representative Robbins mentioned the, the need for drug recognition experts, and I agree with that. And Republicans have offered amendments to spend more money on that, and I, I'm very, very open to doing that. I think we will doing, do that. We've just been waiting to get an estimate of how much money will be raised by the tax in this bill and how much money is spent by the other portions of this bill, because, again, I want the bill to be self-supporting. So I haven't actually put in an amendment to spend more money on that like the Republicans want, but I expect we will. And so we're going to keep working to try and find those common ground, that common ground, and hopefully that will yield even more Republican support than we already have. And I know the House has passed a similar version uh, before. Do you think the votes are there to get it passed this year and to get it passed in the Senate this year? Uh, yes, I'm very confident that we have the votes in the House, and it looks very good in the Senate. I think that this is the year we get the job done. Representative Robbins, I'll give you the last word. Uh, how do you fight this, and do you think you can stop it? You know, I don't know if we're going to be able to stop it, um, but I certainly am not going to give up trying. And I, you know... I understand that there is support on both parties. I hear from constituents who do support it. I hear from many who have grave concerns about it. And I, I do want to point out that another critical issue that still needs to be addressed is the amount that people can possess on their person and have in their homes. Currently, um, it's, it's, it's going to be fuel for the illegal market. So you can possess and give away two ounces, which is a lot. Um, I did the math on that. Uh, two ounces is 56 grams. One gram is enough for three joints. So if you have two ounces, you can make 168 joints. And there's no testing on the homegrown stuff. There's no assurances about the concentration of it. And you can have five pounds uh, in your home. Okay, five and I know, I know, uh, crazy. I know, Representative so Stevenson. We really need to limit. We really need to limit the amount people can possess and give okay. away and have in their homes. I know, Representative Stevenson, you, you, you talked about lowering that five-pound uh, level already, right? And we did lower it this week to one and a half pounds. And I, the only thing that I'll point out, uh, you know, is that with alcohol, there's no limit to how much alcohol you can have in your home. If I want to have, I think Representative Robbins was talking about 56 uh, joints. If I wanted to have 112 uh, cans of Greenbelt Premium in my house, there's nothing stopping me from doing that. 
Well, obviously, a lot to talk about on this issue. I want to thank you both so much. Uh, that's uh, Representative Zach Stevenson. He's a DFLer from Coon Rapids. He's the sponsor of the legal marijuana bill. And Republican Representative Kristen Robbins of Maple Grove. We'll keep watching this as the session goes on. Thanks for coming on today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Minnesota students will soon get school breakfast and lunch without having to pay for it. The governor will sign a bill today that will spend about $200 million a year for the next two years to provide the meals. It mirrors how things worked during the first years of the pandemic when the federal government paid for school meals. So why is the state taking on the job and is it the right thing to do? Here to answer those questions and more are the authors of the bill in the House and Senate, DFL Representative Sidney Jordan of Minneapolis and DFL Senator Heather Gustafson of Vadnais Heights. Thanks to both of you for coming on. And Representative Jordan, let me start with you. Why is it important for the state to do this? Well, thanks for having us on. It's important for the state to do this because children need food to learn. Food, lunch, and breakfast are just as important as books and pencils for making sure that kids can learn their math and learn how to read and make sure that they're productive members of our society. So we need to make sure that we're feeding kids so that they can learn and be the best people that they can be. Senator Gustafson, anything to add to that? Yes, thank you for having us. Um, Being hungry makes it almost impossible to learn. And, you know, we hear a lot about, well, shouldn't we do this or shouldn't we do that? We could do more than one good thing for students. And I also want to remind folks, there's not a literacy program or a math strategy that's going to improve scores if a student doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. So this isn't just a nice thing to do for everybody. This is a critical piece of making our education system successful. Senator, why give these meals to all families when some can afford to pay on their own? Well, we understand that meals testing for this does not work. In fact, um, we know that we're missing probably about 18% of students who don't already directly certify to have free and reduced lunch meals. Plus, we know that there's a lot of people who are just over that level of poverty who are still struggling, who are still paycheck to paycheck, who are really in a place where you know, having to worry about how much money in their lunch account isn't something that we should put on kids. And that's maybe my biggest uh, response to that is that we don't know what's going on with families. There could be a lot of things happening at home. We shouldn't hold children responsible for things that are out of their control. Uh, Sydney Jordan, uh, some of the aid that goes to schools is based on the number of students on free and reduced lunch. Uh, will the schools still get that aid and how will how will it be calculated now? Well, Minnesota has actually recently changed how that aid is calculated and is using something called direct certification. So if a student, um, and it's it's a pilot project, and it includes data sharing between different government agencies, but it's using other more accurate measures of poverty to determine which students in a school um, need extra support. And so those schools can have more income so they can help those students succeed. So we're already using other um, ways of determining poverty. Before these forms are how we've done it in the past. There are a number of other ways we can determine poverty. Um, and we have another bill working through championed by Representative Feist and Senator Gustafson that will do just that and take a really strong look at that aid. But for now, we actually schools are getting more of this what's called compensatory aid than they've ever gotten. In fact, last year, based on the February forecast, there were two, there was 200 million more dollars spent on compensatory aid because of this direct certification. So schools are even getting more of that aid than they've ever gotten in the past, even without um, 
the changes that Senator Gustafson is working on. And Senator Gustafson, are you confident that you can straighten that out and you can provide the aid to students who need it uh, without the uh, free and reduced lunch information that, that you used to rely on? Absolutely. I point out a couple of things, just like Representative Jordan mentioned, districts are going to receive at least the amount of compensatory aid that they were entitled to in 2024, which is like she said, over $290 million more than they received in 2023. Plus, we are working on a more permanent solution to that. Um, And also the Second thing I'll mention, too, is that schools are struggling right now. We hear that. We're working on that. But we are currently living in a Republican education budget. They put 0% increase on the formula last time they were in charge. So schools are already going to be seeing an increase in formula. They're going to be getting help that they haven't received in the last few years. Um, So that is coming as well as a permanent fix to compensatory aid. How big is the problem of uh, hungry kids? Um, Are there kids who need help with food in every school in Minnesota, Representative Jordan? Yes, this is a statewide problem. And I think we've heard a lot about why would we feed hungry kids in a wealthy suburb. But there are hungry kids and people experiencing poverty in every corner of Minnesota. And that includes some of the suburbs or parts of the state that we associate with more wealthy people. So one in six kids is current, according to Hunger Solutions, is currently trying to learn on an empty stomach. And in fact, we think about the current means testing that we're doing is still leaving out a fourth of all kids who are um, food insecure. And so this is a big problem. It's present across school districts. And this bill that we passed, House File 5, is to make sure that kids across the state get fed. And Heather Gustafson, this covers uh, kids in private schools too, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, it does. I mean, we just, again, go back to we don't know what's going on with families at home. We just want to make sure that every kid in Minnesota gets a breakfast and a lunch when they go to school. Mm -hmm. Some of the people who spoke against this during the debates on the floor said uh, a better approach would be to give the schools the money on on the per pupil formula and let them decide how to spend it. The, some schools would feed all the kids. Other schools would, would use the money for different uh, purposes. What's wrong with that argument, Senator? I think it just sort of misses the point in that, you know, Democrats have been fighting for all of those things for a long time. And unfortunately, our, our colleagues across the aisle have not made that a priority. And so while I am all for increasing the formula and the cross-subsidy we're doing that. We're going to do that before the session is over. And we can also feed the kids, too. As I said before, we can do more than one good thing for our students in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And Representative Jordan, what happens during the summer? Is is the federal government still going to take care of that? Well, so this, um, well, the federal government currently is not helping. So the federal um, food nutrition assistance programs that they've stood up during the pandemic are not in effect. And so we are actually behind where there are hungry kids in schools and school lunch debt is racking up now. But the great thing about our bill is that it'll kick in on July 1st. And immediately when the governor signs the bill, there will be money going out to ensure that schools and uh, the Minnesota Department of Education can get going to make sure that we are ready to go on July 1st to help the kids in summer school. So this will apply to kids in summer school um, starting on July 1st. Okay. And I'm sure you're aware that some of the uh, critics uh, in the debate uh, suggested that uh, this could be open to fraud, like the Feeding Our Future uh, scandal, or that it could be wasteful because some kids will throw the food away. How do you respond to that? 
Well, I would say that this is a program that's going to be administered by our school districts. And our school districts did not perpetuate fraud. Our school districts made sure that students were fed. Furthermore, this is a reimbursement program that our schools are already using to set up to get the reimbursements from the federal government. And so this is the existing program that has not had any sort of fraud. Furthermore, if you're concerned about nonprofit fraud as it relates to food and nutrition programs, you should support this bill because the money is going directly to our schools and our districts who are doing a good job um, and are good stewards of state money and do feed every kid. And Senator Gustafson, I mentioned that this is going to cost about $200 million a year. Is the funding sustainable? I mean, the state has a big uh, budget surplus now, but what happens in a couple of years if suddenly there's a deficit uh, on the state books? Yeah, I, I think it's important to remember this is less than 1% increase to the state's education budget. And we've identified this as a need because, you know, I, I should have mentioned right from the top, I am a current public school teacher. So this is a need that schools said that they had. Um, students we know and families for sure need this. I don't think it's too much to ask our Minnesota state budget to put in, again, less than a 1% increase to the state's education budget to make sure that these kids are fed in school. Uh, let me ask both of you, uh, what difference do you expect this to make, uh, especially uh, you know as we see it uh, play out over the next couple of years? And Senator, let me start with you. I think one of the things that we can't overlook is that students now know that every day when they go to school, they're going to have two meals provided for them and they're not going to have to put in a PIN number or show a card. They just know that when they go to school, they're fed. And I don't think that we can underestimate the power of knowing that you're going to have a guaranteed meal at school every day how that's going to affect your mental health, how that's going to affect your overall nutrition, how it's just going to um, you know, improve your sense of security while you're at school. Um, those are things that you can't overlook. And there's certainly things that we're counting on. We know we're going to see as this program moves forward. Representative Jordan, what, what difference do you think it'll make? Well, I think Senator Gustafson did a good job talking about what this will mean for students, but I think it'll make a big difference for their parents as well. Parents can also know that no matter how chaotic life gets, their kid's going to have food at school. So whether they forgot their lunch or whether their parents are going through a divorce or whether they just don't have enough money that month to make sure that everyone can get fed, they can know that that won't impact their child and their child will be taken care of by their school. That's DFL Representative Sidney Jordan of Minneapolis, and we were also joined by DFL Senator Heather Gustafson of Vadness Heights. They are the authors of the bill that will give school meals to all Minnesota students. Congratulations to both of you for getting the legislation passed and signed, we presume, later today. And thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Support comes from Memorial Blood Centers, reminding listeners that the need for blood is constant and the need for new platelet donors is critical. You can learn how to help impact lives and about the ease of donating at mbc.org. This is Politics Friday, and here are some of the voices we heard at the state capitol this week. We'll start by listening to tribal leaders from across the state speaking at the Minnesota House on Sovereignty Day. This is a Sovereignty Day, they say. You know, Sovereignty Day to Red Lake. Back in the day, our Red Lake chiefs, 
did not accept Allotment Act. We all own our land in common. We're a closed reservation, and we're proud of it. We're proud of our chiefs that stood up. But it came many, many penalties for our people. We were put on reservations. Everybody got put on reservation and gave us commodities. But yet we survived. We survived by our fish, our relic walleye, the greatest walleye in the whole world. We survived by gardens. We see you every day. But do you see us? And my brother, who's going to get up and talk, always talks about invisibility. We're not invisible. We know we're not invisible. But sometimes the system looks at us or puts it in a perspective that we are invisible. The racial bias that that shows is, is uncomparable in this, in this land of liberty and equality. The United States can wipe their hands of it and say we, we fixed it. And nothing will ever be fixed because history just sits there as a memory. Painful as it is, it's a simple truth and we need to accept it and embrace it and just leave it be. So that even though I will risk being arrested every day, I go check my mail to make sure that this doesn't happen to any other race of people, any other tribal nation, any other person to be victimized in the way and in that racial hatred that was demonstrated in 1862 and 63 towards my mother's people. I'll leave that thought with you and say me us. You as legislators, the trust is on you to cover for all of us as Anishinaabe people in our reservations. To families that are struggling and to children, last week I had probably the most amount of people that have visited my office since I've been elected. They're not looking for these handouts or they're not here to be taken advantage of as human beings that deserve a roof and, 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 and deserve their families to feel what this American dream, this state of privilege and, and boy, there is a housing justice crisis in our state. These aren't just fables and myths. This is reality. And this all is braided together in these policies that we as elected officials have to do our jobs to ensure that we're protecting humanity here. And housing is a human right. And you have full one-party control in this state. And this is the one bill, folks, this is the one bill that the minority gets a voice in. It's the one. And you know if it was reversed, you would be just as upset. I am a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, When we were privileged to come to the United States, most people were not quite believing that this could have happened to us. And they certainly didn't believe, as we pleaded, that it could happen here. We need a requirement that not only all students, but everybody, everybody in Minnesota educated should have a knowledge of the dangers that mass murder can happen and that people have to understand 
to learn to live with each other. Just some of the voices we heard at the Minnesota Capitol this week. And as I say just about every week, it's been uh, another busy one at the state capitol. Here to help me sort out everything that happened is our uh, dream team, Capitol reporters Dana Ferguson and Brian Baxt. Thanks to you both for being here. Um, Dana, let me start with this debate over the bonding bill. This is the legislation that pays for construction projects all around the state, public colleges and university buildings, local roads and bridges, water treatment plants, all kinds of things. takes a 60% supermajority to pass. That means votes from the minority party, in this case Republicans. And yesterday, Republicans in the Senate followed through on that threat to block the bill because they want tax cuts first. Dana, this really exposed some uh, the frustration and the anger that's kind of been under the surface in the Senate, didn't it? It really did. Um, and we heard a good deal of that come out in the Capital Investment Committee after that vote on the floor. Um, and you heard some of it in the Voices piece that just aired. But uh, DFLers on that committee said, you know, if you're not willing to work with us and to vote on a bonding bill that had Republican support in the House, uh, she was not willing to hear some of those projects from Republican lawmakers that uh, came from GOP-represented districts, and that spurred quite a bit of frustration from Republicans on the committee. They said it's not fair to sort of create a pay-for-play sort of atmosphere on what projects might get into a bonding bill. And they were just really frustrated. They had said ahead of the vote that they needed to see some sort of tax relief come forward before they would support that bonding bill. And um, the vote to potentially bring up a Social Security tax elimination later was not enough for them Hmm. to put up the votes. So, Brian Baxt, what happens now? Well, the Democrats say that they're going to move forward with a cash-only bill, and that's important because they don't need Republican votes on that. They can pass that with a simple majority. What it does, though, is it takes some of the money out of the mix that might have been used on other things, one-time things, including some tax cuts might get us pushed aside if they have to go that route. I would imagine we're going to see another bonding bill pushed later in the session, and uh, some of these Republican projects that uh, they fought for, might get included in that. So there's a chance that they will still get those projects, but they'll have to put up votes for a second construction bill. Uh, but but by and large, it, it does kind of capture the, the tension up here that Republicans know that they're outnumbered and they feel like they can't do much about that. Hmm. And, and I should just note that uh, the bonding bill passed in the House, no problem. I think 21 Republicans voted for it. That's right, including a lot of uh, members who uh, represent districts where the senator voted against it. So there there could be some frustration if Republican projects aren't included in the cash-only bill that uh, could come together in the coming days and be sent back to the House for some kind of concurrence vote, which would mean that they can't really amend it. Mm -hmm. And we should note, uh, while all this happened, uh, Carrie Dietzik, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Uh, said on Tuesday that she had surgery to remove a cancerous tumor, and she's going to have to be working from home for a while. Sorry to hear that. Hope she gets well soon. Um, Do we know anything else about that, Uh, Dana or Brian? We really haven't heard much else from her uh, since that 
release came out on Tuesday. We've heard from a few members just wishing her well and saying that they're going to hold down the fort, so to speak, until she's able to come back in person. Um, But just a little bit of an example of some of the confusion going on in her absence or while she's not physically in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And Brian, they did, uh, they do have a rule in the Senate where uh, folks can vote remotely. It started with uh, COVID-19. I don't know that anyone anticipated this, something like this would have happened. No, and and it, it, it underscores that the Democrats have that one seat majority. So if there would have been a physically present rule, that would really handicap the Senate. There's been another member who had a baby during the session. Uh, she's back already. But but, but And then we have a, a senator, up, uh, Tory Westrom, up, up from western Minnesota, who was involved in a snowmobile accident over the weekend, and he's been out. So there, there's, there's these uh, incidents that do come up, and without that remote voting, it would be a uh, paralyzed place. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just a couple minutes left, uh, talked about this marijuana bill earlier and, uh, some big differences on there. It's been through a bunch of committees already, Brian, it just seems like, uh, they're going to have to keep working on this thing, huh? Yeah. And just, just before we came on the Senate public safety and judiciary committee passed it, moved it to the rules committee. So that could indicate that it's getting nearer to the point of, of final action in at least one chamber. But uh, we're going to have to watch to see whether the senators have the votes there. There was a robust discussion about impairment and some of these other issues that uh, even the supporters acknowledged that that there could be additional impairment on the roads. But right now, there's not a great way to test for it. This has been one of those everywhere, everything all at once days. Uh, it's There is so much going on at the Capitol, which is unusual for Friday. We had ranked choice voting come up. We had uh, pardon board come up. We had uh, uh, the marijuana bill, uh, fentanyl bills. It just goes to show how much lawmakers are trying to bite off this year. Yeah, we scheduled this program on Fridays because we thought we might have a better chance of getting people to come on, but everybody's busy. Way to work that Oscars reference in, though, Brian. <laughs> One of the movies I haven't seen yet, but want to want to try to get to. Uh, let me uh, ask you about uh, our governor, Tim Walls, uh, making the national media rounds. Dana, what do we think is going on there? Yeah, he got a little bit of a splash of the national limelight and seems to be really soaking it up still again. Um, he's had two national TV appearances within the last 24 hours. Um, and before that, he was featured last weekend down at a conference in Miami. So um, seeming to get a little bit more recognition on the national stage and wanting to put his policies as well as Minnesota more broadly um, out there for the country to see. And uh, Certainly, that has to do with the DFL having a trifecta, being able to move more of their priority policies and wanting to get some of that national attention for what they're doing. What do you think, Brian? Is he running for something? I Not that I've heard. I mean, he just came off a, a, a re-election, and, and he, in the first term, he, he kept his head down. He didn't do a lot of these national appearances, and so it's interesting to see but what he what he's building toward is anybody's guess. Obviously, there's a presidential election coming up, but there's an incumbent Democrat who is indicating he'll run. Doesn't seem like that's an avenue. We have two Democratic senators. Uh, it could be, just be that the governor really feels like he wants to contrast what's going on in Minnesota with what's going on culturally in some of these other states where Republicans are taking a harder line on the cultural issues. Mm-hmm. And he, he also released his revised budget uh, this week. Any surprises there? 
to you? No, I mean, he, he put more money into the public safety initiative. He put money into a lead pipe uh, replacement effort. And he added this electric vehicle tax credit, which would piggyback on one that's offered by the federal government. But there wasn't a lot of new money around. So it was it was largely just a continuation of the themes that he had pushed in that budget he released in January. Dana, with about 40 seconds to go, what should we be watching for next week? Yeah, we'll have a second deadline coming up. So bills have to clear uh, the committee in the opposite chamber where they started if they're to continue staying alive. Um, we'll also get budget targets, which will really get the budget conversations going in the last several weeks. And on Monday, the House is going to take up a debate on an abortion bill that deals with protections for providers and patients. So no absence of big news coming from the Capitol next week. As always, it sounds like it's going to be busy. Um, Thanks so much for keeping an eye on it for us. Uh, Dana Ferguson, uh, NPR political reporter, and Brian Baxt, who covers the Capitol for NPR News. That will just about do it for our Friday program today. Our producer is Matthew Alvarez. Our technical director is Alex Simpson. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a great St. Patrick's Day. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you again here next Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.